Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. in the middle of our sermon series entitled Encounters with Jesus, with the basic idea being that in life we have these universal longings, that all of us in life will have these yearnings and longings for certain things. And so in this series, we are taking the time just to pause and to look at the stories of a variety of different men and women throughout the Bible who had many of the same longings that you and I might have today and who seem to find answers to those longings in the person of Jesus. Now, being a reasonably responsible person, I, uh, in an attempt to define what some of those longings might be, I turn to that most noble and trusted of sources, the internet, and uh, in particular, the online blog of the Huffington Post. And in 2016, the Huffington Post conducted a survey, and they asked their readership, they asked them, what are the things that you most long for in life? And uh, the answers they gave, they gave, I think you'll agree, are quite enlightening. In no particular order, here are the top 10 longings as expressed by the readership of the Huffington Post. We had love, happiness, money, acceptance, peace, meaning, fulfillment, purpose, wholeness, and passion. Now, I don't know about you, or the slides might come up, or my, the slides are not coming up. We'll go slideless. Yeah, I do. Is that what they want? Sorry, technical, technical hitch. <laughs> Seamless. You never noticed. I was in another world. Um, but a cursory look at the list you can't see tells you that a lot of those things might actually resonate with you. Certainly a lot of those longings resonate with me, and we don't have time to go into all of them today, but a few to bear in mind as we unpack our story for today are the longings for meaning, for fulfillment, for purpose, and passion. In essence, West End Service, what are we living for? What's really driving us? What's motivating us? What's the point to this life we're living? And our encounter with Jesus today is found in chapter 12 of John's Gospel. If you have a Bible with you, or more likely a, a mobile phone device with an app that looks like a Bible, feel free to jump to John 12. Um, but before we dive in, I want to take the time to do a little bit of legwork to unpack the backstory and to look together at the author of this story and look at why perhaps they chose to write it and why perhaps they wrote it in the way that they did. Now, the first four books of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often referred to as the Gospels. And these are first-hand written accounts of the life of Jesus, each one written by someone who knew Jesus personally and each one written within living memory of Jesus's death. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you've read the Gospels, but John's Gospel seems to be somehow strangely different from the other three. So the first three, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are sometimes referred to as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, a uh, word which literally means see together. 
So they're synoptic in that they present a summary or a sort of synopsis of all the events of Jesus's life. And there's a lot of overlap between the three of them. There's a lot of commonality. They share a lot of the same details and the same stories. And this just goes on to make them incredibly reliable as ancient texts. But it also presents John even more starkly as being very, very different, both in style and approach. Take Matthew, for example. Matthew, the writer of the first gospel, he was a tax collector and he was a bookkeeper. He worked for the Roman Empire, had a job, basically he was called a, a publican. He was sometimes involved in census taking and taking of census information. Um, it's hardly surprising, therefore, that when Matthew starts writing his account of his experiences with Jesus, he wants to give all the facts concerning who this guy Jesus is, wants to make sure we understand his identity and the genealogy. So in Matthew chapter 1, you find this long list of the 42 generations from Abraham right down through to Jesus. So uh, there in Matthew 1, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth, right the way down through to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is the way Matthew chooses to kick off his gospel. He wants you to be in no doubt as to the history of who this random guy Jesus is. But then maybe let's take a look at Luke the writer of the third gospel. He was a doctor and a scientist. He, very factual man, very rigorous thinker. And as a scientist, aware that others were writing about the life of Jesus, he begins his written account with a preface. And he starts by saying this. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke then goes on to record in great detail the story leading up to Jesus' birth. If you've been around a church service any time around Christmas, you will have no doubt heard those classic verses in Luke where it describes the story of Mary and Joseph looking for a room in an inn and instead they end up in the stable, etc. He's very careful to tell the story in great detail. And whilst the others are focused on genealogy and getting all the factual detail and context in place, suddenly we find this guy, John, now, John was not a tax collector. John was not a bookkeeper. He was not a doctor or a scientist. John was a fisherman. And John certainly seems to approach things a little differently to the other guys. John begins his written account with this beautifully rich, poetic, pictorial language, which has echoes of Genesis 1, the beginning of the whole Bible itself. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
And for me, growing up as a boy, I was fascinated with John. Along with the Psalms, the Gospel of John was just, it was my favorite bit of the Bible. And I don't know if you've ever had this with a text before, but sometimes writers just seem to be speaking your language on your wavelength. And more than lots of other parts of the Bible, the Gospel of John just seemed to be like, yeah, I, I seem to get what this guy's saying. He's, he's talking to me. And I was taken by how apparently different his approach was to the other three Gospel writers. And if I can, I'd like you to allow me to summarize it like this. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus largely on what Jesus did, it's a record of his events and the story, then John seems to focus much more expressly on who Jesus is. You see, seven times in John's gospel, there are statements directly from Jesus stating who he is. They're like the seven I am statements that Jesus makes. There are also seven times where John records these incredible miraculous signs that it's claimed that Jesus performed that display who he is. And why does he do this? Why does John choose to focus in this way? Well, it's my personal perspective that he's trying to give something much more than, a, than an account or a simple record of events. John, in his writing, is trying to introduce us to a person, a person who arguably changed history more than anyone else before him or after him, the person of Jesus. And we find out why he does this at the end of his gospel where he says, but these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's in John chapter 20. You see, this Christianity thing, this Jesus thing, and we're going to explore a particular encounter that a man and a woman have with Jesus in just a minute, but it's much more than simply a list of rules or a list of do's or don'ts. It's about meeting a person. This Christianity thing is about a relationship. And so we are going to explore today a bit of who Jesus is through the eyes of two very different people in John chapter 12. So here we go. We'll dive in, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Showstopper, that's a big one. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. You'd expect so if you've raised someone from the dead, that's fair. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this, though, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. 
So in this story today, we have two key characters. We have Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, and we have Judas, one of the 12 disciples and the man who would eventually betray Jesus. And through their experiences, through their encounter with Jesus, and through their different responses, I want to explore two big key ideas with you all today. And those are the ideas of worship and the idea of living for something greater than yourself. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for each of you when you hear the word worship. Uh, for many of us here, I assume what comes to mind is what we've literally just been doing. A lot of lovely looking people standing in rows, facing the wall and singing. And most of our experience of worship is that. And I want to suggest that that is part of worship, an incredibly important part of worship to the extent that singing together songs to God is something that is going on with the angels and the elders throughout all eternity. But the core idea of worship is actually something far broader and deeper than that. You see, the dictionary definition of worship is this. It says, worship is an acknowledgement of worth, great admiration or devotion shown towards a person or principle. Now, based on this definition, worship isn't simply limited to just a spiritual idea, but rather can be applied to all of life, to any person or any principle that you or I would place great admiration or devotion towards. Worship is much more about our whole life, about every part of it, rather than simply singing songs on a Sunday. In fact, the Bible would very much agree with this definition. In a letter written by Paul, who was one of like the big figures in the early church, he was writing to a community of believers in Rome, and he said this. He said, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is far more about our whole lives than simply what songs we might sing. And in our story, Mary's response to encountering Jesus was to respond with an act of worship, to acknowledge his worth and to show great admiration and devotion to him. And the way she did this was a little abstract and a little random, but was to essentially pour fragrant oil all over Jesus' feet. And I want to pick up four things about Mary's act of worship that I think are really key. So the first thing I want to say about her worship is that it was extravagant. Mary's worship in this moment was extravagant. This was a, a very rare and expensive oil and perfume that she chose to pour over Jesus' feet. Not only was it rare and expensive, but the amount she chooses to pour over Jesus' feet, I mean, it's over half a liter. I mean, if I take a 500 ml bottle of olive oil and start sploshing it around, I'm going to make a mess. It's extravagant. She's going for it. And it says there in the text that this amount of that oil would have been worth a year's wages. Now, I'm pretty sure if I took a straw poll of all you lovely people and said, right, I'm going to give you a cash advance and I'm going to give you a year's wages, what are you going to go and spend it on? I don't think many of you are going to say, I know, I'm going to spend it on half a litre of very rare and expensive nard oil. No, I'm sure you've all got loads of ideas. But for whatever reason, Mary seemed to have this response to Jesus where the most precious and valuable thing she had, she was willing to pour out. This act of worship cost Mary. It was extravagant. 
Mary's worship was also secondly intimate. In the culture of the day, in the part of the world that we're in, in the Middle East in this story, it was a very normal part of life to wash feet. Um, without getting into too many smelly, pungent details, you know, a hot climate, open-toed sandals, your feet are going to need washing before you recline for dinner and take your sandals off. But this job was typically reserved for servants in the household, not for the women and not certainly for the hosts. And wiping Jesus' feet here with her own hair is an indication of Mary's closeness and intimacy with Jesus, as well as her apparent humility in being willing to take on the work of a servant and serving Jesus in washing and wiping his feet. So her worship was extravagant. It was intimate. Thirdly, I want to suggest that it was unhindered. I'm struck when reflecting on this story that Mary seems to be entirely unaware of anyone else in the picture when she's doing this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it describes that Mary was busy, uh, sorry, Martha was busy doing her serving thing, and Lazarus is reclining at the table having a great time, telling everyone his favorite story about how he got raised from the dead, and you know, all this is going on. And then somehow in the background, it's like Mary is totally unaware of all of this. She's not focusing on what other people are doing, she's not distracted by others, she's just unhindered in this moment of breaking open this jar of oil and pouring it over Jesus' feet. For Mary, it's as if she's got an audience of one with Jesus. The others might as well have not been there. And in our very noisy, very busy, often very chaotic 21st century London lives, I want to suggest that there's a real lesson there for us that sometimes we have to find a way to shut off the distractions, to close the Facebook feed and the Twitter account and just try and make time to denoise and declutter our lives. When I, um, when I first moved to London for about uh, nine months in sort of 2011-12 time, I, uh, I spent nine months traveling to and from uh, Calgary in Canada, the architect's firm I was working for. We were building a hospital out there, so I had to travel a lot. And... Uh, I love flying, so it was great. I just, I love being in airplanes. It feels like free time. It's like no one can contact you. You're up in there. It's wonderful. I love airplanes. But my most important possession to take with me on my flights was my Sennheiser noise-canceling earphones. Now, I don't know what you guys are like when you travel. I don't want to talk to anyone. I become the most antisocial version of myself, but it's like time on trains or planes is like me time. Don't disturb me. I'm really not interested. Unless you're dying or something really serious is happening, I don't want to know. Anyway, I found it very useful to put these headphones in, and I wouldn't even necessarily plug the headphones into the machine and watch a video in the you know, headrest in front of me. I would just put them in my ears, because for me it was a way of just cutting out all the background noise. It was a way for me to zone in, spend time praying and reflecting and thinking and dreaming. And I want to encourage you, maybe there's things you can do in your life to just cut out some of the background noise sometimes. I think it's an incredibly healthy habit for us. So Mary's worship was extravagant. It was intimate. It was unhindered. And fourthly, it changed the atmosphere with a sort of beautiful way of writing that is characteristic of someone who was there in the room. John tells us that the, the smell of this perfume filled the entire house. It's like the, the act of worship that Mary poured out, it changed the very sense of the atmosphere they were in. 
Have you, have you ever met one of those people that just walks in the room and somehow the mood changes? Just the atmosphere changes. Maybe you've got one of your friends. I, I met a, um, a Christian speaker, Christian missionary called Heidi Baker years ago when I was a teenager. And she walked in and it was just like something changed. She just had this massive, truly American, Californian white smile on her face. And it was just it was something different about her. And I think looking back on it now, it was because of what was going on inside of her much more than her physical appearance, what she carried, the journey with God she'd been on. But somehow worship changes the atmosphere. Now, in the culture at the time, there was a rabbinic saying that goes like this. It said, the fragrance of good oil is diffused from the bedroom to the dining hall, but a good name is diffused from one end of the world to the other. Now, taking a little bit of poetic license, if such a saying were known by John in the first century, and it's not unreasonable to think he might have known this saying, then maybe this is John's way of indicating that Mary's act of worship would have been spoken, out, spoken about throughout the entire world for generations to come. Indeed, in, in Mark's account of the same story, in Mark 14, he writes this. He says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary's worship was extravagant. It was intimate. She knew Jesus closely and was willing to take down her hair and wipe his feet. It was unhindered to the point that no matter who was in the room, she didn't care. She just wanted an audience of one with Jesus. And it changed the atmosphere. It changed the way the place she was in felt. And in terms of what this maybe tells us about who Jesus is, well, it seems to imply that Jesus is someone who Mary, and in fact millions of men and women even to this day, feel is worth giving everything for. Mary's response to encountering Jesus was an extravagant display of worship that basically said, you know what, I'm going to give everything in this moment. And it was also an incredible act that demonstrated she was living in the light of a story that was somehow much bigger than her own. It was something that transcended her own individual existence. In this moment, it seems she's not just in her own day-to-day -day experience. She's somehow part of a bigger story. She's been caught up in something greater than herself. If we take a look at Mary's own personal life, I mean, it was only in the previous chapter that her brother Lazarus died. I mean, fairly big life event. And now, I know if you track the story through which we have that Jesus raises him from the dead, but, but stay with me on this. Just a chapter ago, she lost her brother. Her brother had died. And what is interesting about that is you see nard, this rare and expensive perfume that seems a little weird and abstract in the moment of reading the story, that perfume, which comes from northern India, was used at the time almost exclusively in the embalming process used on dead bodies. So this perfume would have been associated with death and burial. And so I'm left thinking, all right, Mary, why on earth didn't you use this on your brother? Why wasn't that moment of losing your brother, who I'm sure she dearly loved, the moment to break out this special perfume. You see, 
it seems that Mary has been caught up in a story that is much bigger than her own experience, is somehow even much bigger than her own life events of losing her own brother, that she saved that oil but was willing to pour it out at the feet of Jesus. The the setting for this story is Bethany, we got from right at the beginning of the text, and hopefully... Are we slideless or slides? We have a map. We do have a map. Two red dots very, very close together. The one on the right there is Bethany. The one just to its left is Jerusalem. Now, this story is taking place at Passover. Six days later, it was going to be Passover. So we are just one week away from all the major events of Easter Sunday. And we are literally sitting in a village that is within spitting distance of where Jesus knew he was going to be crucified, he was going to be buried, and all of the events of Easter were going to take place. And somehow in her small moment of choosing to break open an offering of worship and pour oil on Jesus' feet, Mary is symbolically caught up in events that would ultimately change the whole of history. She's caught up in a story that is much bigger than herself. Do you remember I mentioned previously that uh, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John? So seven moments that it's recorded where Jesus said, I am such and such. Well, perhaps Mary had heard enough and seen enough of this man, Jesus, to come to a place of believing for herself that when Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the gate, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, that maybe, just maybe, this guy Jesus was telling the truth. Or perhaps it was not the words he said, but it was the seven miracles he displayed Maybe it was changing water into wine. Maybe it was healing the royal official's son. Maybe it was healing the paralytic at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man who was blind from birth. Or maybe the clincher for Mary was raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. Whatever it was, Mary certainly seems to have been convinced. And in this moment of encountering Jesus... She was caught up in a story bigger than her own, and she was prepared to pour out and lay down everything that was of value as a result. I wonder what we make of the claims of Jesus. I wonder what we think about the statements he made about who he is. I wonder what we think about the miracles it's claimed that he performed The claims he made and the things he has claimed to have done are certainly bold. And whether you've been journeying with Jesus for years or whether you're just starting out on a journey of saying, what is this Jesus guy all about and what does this Christianity thing mean? I encourage you, keep asking questions. Keep digging into the idea of who is this Jesus? What what did he mean when he said this? What did it mean when he reached out to touch the leper and heal him? I encourage you, keep asking questions. Now, I am unashamedly a bit of a geek sometimes. I I love maths. I love physics. I did double maths and physics at A-level. I miss it. And uh, I also love Einstein, this guy. What an absolute legend. Apart from being an amazing mind, he also is like my hairstyle guru. He's like absolutely on it when it comes to hair. But uh, I remember one evening, actually, it was a wonderful Saturday evening, and um, 
As well as loving maths and physics and Einstein, I also love documentaries. And on the very back pages of the BBC iPlayer, I found like the Holy Grail. It was a 90-minute documentary about Einstein's theory of relativity. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Result, we're in. Evening is set. The, uh, that, was, that was definitely a result. And you know, you can think I'm as sad as you like. But um, the, the bigger... The bigger result, I kid you not, was not that I'd found this documentary, was, but was that I managed to convince my wife to watch that documentary with me. Now, Georgie and I have many shared passions and interests, but I want to gently suggest that Einstein is not one of them. However, uh, in that documentary, one of the quotes from Einstein that they, uh, that they flashed up on the screen and, and recited was this. He said, the important thing is to never stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. I love that. The important thing is to never stop questioning. And I'm not sure if you've been around church experience long or if here in Christchurch, London, this is your sort of first church experience, but certainly I've been in churches where it's felt like there's no space to question anything and that we sort of have to pretend all the time that, oh yeah, yeah, I've, I've got this all figured out and I, I read my Bible three times last week and I've just, I've got this thing sussed. But the reality is it's actually a very important process for us to keep questioning. Even if we've been around church for years, it's important to keep asking the big and challenging questions, the questions that really affect our lives. And when it comes to Jesus, there are certainly some important questions for us to ask. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet like Mary did and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I wonder, West End Service, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? The implications of that question are far-reaching. And what's particularly interesting about our story today is what happens next. You see, we have our second character who enters the scene, and we see here Judas and his response to Jesus. Simply put, we see that Judas criticizes Mary. Now, at first glance, and giving him the benefit of the doubt, his criticism seems to be reasonably well-founded. Why wasn't this perfume sold, he says, and the money given to the poor? Certainly, even in today's culture, that's a reasonable question. You know, if you've got a year's wages worth of stuff, just tell Jesus you love him and give the money to the poor. You think, fair question. However, we quickly learn that his intentions are not quite as pure as he pretended or presented them to be. He did not say this, it says, because he cared about the poor, but rather because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Essentially, he wasn't interested in the poor. He wasn't moved by a cause or an issue of social justice. Really, he was just interested in the money. 
But for me, when I'm reading this, I can't help but wonder if actually this isn't about the money at all. You see, it's rarely about what's going on at the surface. It's rarely about the money, as it were. It's often that that is an indicator of something going on at a much deeper level that is much more powerful in our hearts. 1 Samuel 16 says this, it says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, the outside stuff. But actually the Lord looks at the heart. An encounter with Jesus and a response to Jesus is much more about what is going on inside of us than what we see on the outside or on the surface. For me, it seems that somewhere inside Judas's heart, Maybe he hadn't really seen who Jesus is. Even though Judas has been around Jesus for about three and a half years at this point. You know, he's been walking around with Jesus and 11 others for three years. He's been with him when he prayed. He's been there when Jesus taught to thousands. He's been there when Jesus fed 5,000 people, turned water into wine at Cana. He's seen all the miracles. He's been there in the moments, but somehow... Maybe this money moment is an indicator that he hasn't really seen who Jesus is. You see, I wonder if there are some of us here, we've maybe been around church for years. We know the songs to sing, we know the moments to be in and how to act, but maybe there's a challenge today. Who really is this guy, Jesus? As a result, Judas, well, his apparent compassion for the poor is really just a mask. It's a, it's a masquerade for his own self-righteousness and his own selfish financial gain. And I can't help but wonder if actually the self-righteousness that Judas exhibits isn't dissimilar to some of the self-righteousness we see in our world and our city today. It only takes a cursory glance on Facebook or Twitter to see that in amongst a lot of the genuine social concern, there is a lot of angry outrage, which often just seems to be a mask for bitterness and an opportunity to vent. We see this more and more in our sort of postmodern, post-postmodern, whatever you want to call it, culture, with this concept of clicktivism. I don't know if you've heard of this word. It's a cool word. But basically, it's the notion that our generation, typically a predominantly millennial generation, are more motivated to share an idea on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, or click like to a cause we believe in, but that for whatever reason, it seems to stop just there. There's nothing wrong with clicking like on a great cause or sharing an article that really moved you, but for whatever reason, our generation struggles to take that to the next step of actually acting and moving and resulting in personal change in our own lives. If we believe the causes we share on our feeds enough, are we prepared to do something about it? And the really challenging bit about this story for me is that if I'm really honest with myself, and I'm really honest and take a look in the mirror and in my own heart, I can see a little bit of Judas in me too. You know, how many times have I shared something on my Facebook feed which is, you know, a great cause, a worthy cause, but I'm actually more motivated by the number of people who like it and the number of people who share it than I am motivated to actually do anything about the cause I first shared. How many times have I seen behaviors on the surface of my life, on the outside, on the outward outworkings of my own life, 
that are really just an indicator of something going on deeper inside me. They point to a, a deeper root issue and a deeper cause. And I wonder, folks, if we're being really honest with ourselves, I wonder if we can each see just a little bit of Judas in each one of our own hearts. Ultimately, what I think we see here is that it wasn't only Mary who was worshiping in this story. We focused a lot on Mary's extravagant, intimate, unhindered worship that changed the atmosphere. But really what I think we find here is that Judas is worshiping too. But rather than it being Jesus towards whom Judas is showing great admiration and devotion, it is instead towards his own promotion and his own gain that such devotion is shown. David Foster Wallace was a brilliant American writer, uh, wrote brilliantly, uh, influenced a lot of the postmodern movement, wrote novels and essays. He was uh, born to atheist parents and went on a real journey of asking big questions about faith. He had this to say about worship. Here's something else that's weird but true, he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as proverbs and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick, David suggests, is keeping the truth in our daily consciousness. Rich, could I ask you to come back up? We're going to start to draw things towards uh, spending some more time in worship together. But the reality is, folks, we're all worshipping something. We're all living for something, a cause, whatever that cause might be. And let me ask you this, whether you would describe yourself as a person of faith or not, what are you living for? What are you really deeply passionate about? What moves you to act? If we were to look at the ordinary day-to-day -day of our own lives, what are we really worshipping? If we are passionate about seeing change in this city that we love, how do we think that's going to happen? Are we willing to give everything? Are we willing to give what is valuable and precious to us for a cause that is really worth living for? And maybe for those of us who would describe ourselves as followers of Jesus, let me ask you this. Is your worship like Mary's? Is your worship extravagant? Is it intimate? Is it unhindered? And does it change the atmosphere? I know that's certainly a challenge for me. But perhaps if we're being really honest, somewhere deep down, we're all a bit like Judas. We've all got bits of our lives where actually a deep root cause is just starting to pop out on the surface and we see it in our actions. Or maybe we've been around church a lot of the time and we know how this gig works, but actually have we started to ask 
or continued to ask the big questions about who Jesus is. Just want to finish with one final quote before we go back into a time of just being with God, of worshiping Him, of entering into that relationship freely that He offers us. But this final quote is from a very inspirational woman called Saint Therese of Lisieux. Now, Therese, at the age of 15, she was living in France. And at 15 years of age, she made the life-altering decision to become a nun, to commit her life to solitude and prayer and to become a nun. And despite tragically dying at just 24 years of age in 1897, after a short fight with TB, she has actually been massively influential for many Christian men and women due to this beautiful simplicity and practicality of her approach to spiritual life. She said this, She said, most of all, I imitate the behavior of Mary for her audacity, which delighted the heart of Jesus, has cast its spell on mine. Therese had read this story, had read this account from a man called John about a woman called Mary just breaking open a vessel of oil and pouring it on Jesus' feet. And the audacity that Mary shows compelled St. Therese to respond. I wonder, would you stand? And I'm going to pray before we worship. Jesus, we come before you for who you really are, Lord, and we just ask... Give us each, I pray, this afternoon, a fresh glimpse of who you are. Whatever we may have heard, whatever our experiences have been to date, whatever our benchmark is for what worship looks like or what you look like, Lord, I pray for just a new glimpse of who you are this afternoon, Lord. I thank you that there is nothing we could do as we heard earlier, to make you love us any more. There's nothing we could do to make you love us any less. Lord, you love us. Jesus, you displayed that most spectacularly upon the cross when you laid down your own life for us, that we could be back in relationship with you. And God, for where we have got lost or overcomplicated this journey and made it anything more difficult than a relationship. We just come back to the heart of what you are wanting to do. We look at you, God, as one who loves us and gave yourself for us. We receive the free gift of your grace. By the presence of your Holy Spirit, would you be with us now as we worship and meet with each one of us, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.